BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning, I'm Lily Jamali. California's Workplace Safety Board is expected to ease mask rules for fully vaccinated employees, but it likely won't become official for at least a few more weeks. Cal OSHA's Standards Board heard from both business leaders and the public during a contentious meeting last night before deciding that its new workplace standards would align with mask rules issued by state and federal health officials. The new proposal is expected to be presented at a board meeting next week and could go into effect as early as June 28th. The meeting came just hours after state health officials released their mask rules for when California officially reopens next Tuesday. Health and Human Services Secretary Mark Galley says for the most part, people who are fully vaccinated can resume normal activities without a mask. But there are some exceptions. California residents who are vaccinated will still need to wear masks on public transit, in schools from kindergarten to 12th grade, and in child care centers. They'll also need to use face coverings in health care facilities prisons, jails, and homeless shelters. And people who are not fully vaccinated will have to wear masks in all indoor public settings. Two lawsuits have been filed against the Roman Catholic Diocese of Fresno under a law known as the California Child Victims Act. That law extends the statute of limitations for survivors of childhood sexual assault to file lawsuits through the end of next year. The California Report's Alex Hall has more. The lawsuits allege former longtime Central Valley priest Monsignor Craig Harrison sexually abused two minors in the late 80s and 90s while he was a pastor in Bakersfield and Firebaugh, a small town west of Fresno. The Fresno Diocese has been reviewing its own records for allegations of sexual abuse since 2019 and is one of the few dioceses in California and in the country to not yet publish a list of credibly accused priests. At a press conference in Fresno Wednesday, attorney Jeff Anderson urged Bishop Joseph Brennan of the Fresno Diocese to release the list. Bishop Brennan has a list. He knows the names, he knows the histories, and he has evidence in his files. Let the people, let the parishioners, let the public, and let the police know what you know. 
A spokeswoman for the Fresno Diocese said its policy not to comment on pending litigation, but that the diocese is in the final stages of completing the list and plans to release it in the near future. Harrison's attorney released a statement saying his client denies the accusations and that the lawsuits are, quote, ultimately about money. For the California Report, I'm Alex Hall in Fresno. It's been two weeks since a gunman killed nine people at a rail yard in San Jose. Shortly after that shooting, officials started talking about red flag laws, asking if they might have prevented the shooting from happening. KQED's Aditi Bandlamudi reports from San Jose. Red flag laws are actually a nickname for a gun violence restraining order used on people who raise red flags, people in danger of harming themselves or others, and in the possession of firearms. California was one of the first states in the country to pass such a law back in 2014, but not many law enforcement agencies have used the order, including in Santa Clara County, home to San Jose, where the mass shooting happened two weeks ago. District Attorney Jeff Rosen says during the first few years after the law was passed, the county issued less than 10 red flag orders a year. Police officers get phone calls, get 911 calls from neighbors, family members, coworkers. Hey, this person I know is threatening to kill themselves or others. The police officers would respond and they wouldn't know that they could get a gun violence restraining order and remove the guns. So in 2018, a number of counties began streamlining the process and improving the way law enforcement officers are trained to use the law. At last report, Santa Clara, along with San Diego and Orange counties, led the state for the most red flag orders issued. Now we're taking the next step of public service announcements and training to businesses to educate them. So how does this law work? if you're afraid someone close to you might use a gun to hurt themselves or others. After you call the police and ask for a red flag order, your request will make its way to a judge who will ask for evidence that this person is in danger. Presuming you can provide that, the judge will order the person to surrender their guns and ammo for at least 21 days and send law enforcement over to collect the guns. California's red flag law was recently expanded in 2019 to allow coworkers, educators, and employers to request the orders. Assemblymember Phil Ting of San Francisco wrote that bill. We saw over and over again shootings occur at schools as well as at workplaces. And so it made sense to expand uh, gun violence restraining orders beyond the people uh, who could get them, which were family members and law enforcement. Even though we're talking about the law in the context of the mass shooting in San Jose, these orders are more commonly used to prevent suicide or domestic violence. Esther Parales-Diekman runs Next Door Solutions to Domestic Violence in San Jose. We find that people who perpetrate violence are very focused on hurting and abusing the victim, and they're not necessarily concerned about their restraining order. She says there are a variety of reasons a victim might not want to make the call. The victim could be undocumented. The police might not show up fast enough. The aggressor could be in law enforcement. And if a child is involved, frequent 911 calls could be used against the victim in custody hearings. Parales Diekman says there has to be a way to stop the cycle of violence before it gets to the point someone needs to invoke the red flag law. Because, she reminds us, mass shooters often turn out to be people accused of domestic violence in the past. How do you prevent violence? Because it is learned behavior. And what the studies show is in some of these situations, perpetrators were exposed to violence much earlier in life. Either they were children who were somehow exposed to abuse or observed domestic violence. So it is learned behavior. 
Why did no one call in the San Jose shooter? Well, he lived alone at the time. Also, the red flag law expansion to include more people who could have called went into effect shortly before the pandemic. Had one or more of the shooter's co-workers known about the law, they might have called. But all of that's conjecture in hindsight. For The California Report, I'm Aditi Bandlamudi in San Jose. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Well, early in the pandemic, COVID-19 infections among farm workers in the Central Valley and along the Central Coast were rampant. Now, those regions have become a focal point for vaccinations. Kate Samini of the Salinas Californian and Cal Matters has been following this story. Earlier, we spoke about how farm worker protections have evolved in Monterey County. Well, Monterey County um, in general was leading the pack in workplace safety when it came to COVID-19. It was the first county to pass a resolution about how to keep farm workers safe at work, Uh, you know, what social distancing was going to look like, how much PPE was allotted, et cetera. And since then, Monterey County has seen really significant cases of COVID-19 among farm workers, but a lot of that is because in large part, the story of COVID-19 in Monterey County is intricately tied to the story of overcrowded housing. Contact tracing on the part of the Monterey County Health Department, you know, from what I learned over the course of the pandemic, was it really found that farm workers who contacted COVID-19 um, were sickened by others living in their homes. Um, in general, uh, most farm workers in Monterey County live on the east side of Salinas, um, called the Alisal, and Oftentimes you'll find farm workers, you know, 20 people crowded into a three bedroom home. It's a great environment for viruses to thrive. So what is the picture like now? I mean, what is the infrastructure that's in place that's been built around trying to get farm workers vaccinated in mass? Um, You know, a lot of that goes to um, regular clinics that Monterey County is holding. They've held specific ones uh, in partnership with, for example, uh, Natividad Hospital. Um, specifically for farm workers. And I know that uh, Grower Shipper uh, of Central California has held every week at least one vaccination clinic, um, working with growers to make sure that farm workers get maybe a, a half a day off or a full day off paid so that they can go and get vaccinated. And uh, as of, I believe, two weeks ago, they had vaccinated nearly 30,000 farm workers in Monterey County against COVID-19. Is there a way you can put that number in context for us? Is that a fairly significant number relative to the total? That is a significant number. The closest total that we have of farm workers in our region comes from the Salinas and Pajaro Valleys farm worker study of 2018. 
which places the number of farm workers in both the Salinas and Pajaro Valley, but you know, I offhand I'm told the majority live in Salinas at about 94,000. So 30,000 vaccinated simply by grower shipper alone, that's a pretty decent total. Is this effort fairly uniform? I mean, it sounds like employers are a really big part of this. Are we seeing results across some of the larger employers in the region? You know, I know Diarigo Brothers has recently gotten a lot of attention for partnering with Grower Shipper to mass vaccinate um, its its farm workers. Uh, I believe Diarigo, which, um, you know, fun fact, um, owns the patent on Broccoli Rob and, you know, has been in the Salinas Valley for decades. They held the first max, mass vaccination of farm workers uh, in Monterey County. Um, and potentially in California, actually. It wasn't always um, smooth sailing for DiRigo. I, I do know that a story came out in the Atlantic, you know, last summer, I believe in July, that focused on issues that DiRigo had had with, you know, getting its, its farm workers appropriately PPE'd up in the fields. But it seems that Monterey County uh, in general, the, the farm workers have turned a corner. All right, Kate Samini, reporter with the Salinas Californian and CalMatters, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. A contract employee who had been working at a mass vaccination site in L.A. County has been arrested for allegedly stealing more than 500 blank COVID-19 vaccination cards. Investigators say the Las Vegas man initially claimed he took the cards to pre-fill and got ahead of his workload, but prosecutors believe he stole the cards with the intent of selling them. In recent months, the FBI has warned the public about the sale of these fake vaccination cards, saying that participating in such sales can lead to felony charges. Finally this morning, a brightly colored lifeguard tower that honors pride and the LGBTQ community in the city of Long Beach will be dedicated later today. The original tower was painted in rainbow colors last June by LGBTQ members of the Long Beach Marine Safety Division as part of Pride Week festivities in the city. But it was destroyed by an arson fire earlier this year, which Long Beach Mayor Robert Garcia called an act of hate. No arrests have been made in the case, which is still under investigation. And that is the California Report for this Thursday, June 10th. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. Thank you for listening. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food, on the web at theschmidt.org. Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits, stanfordhealthcare.org adaptingcare. And Personal Capital, helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor. PersonalCapital.com. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. 
They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures. Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! <laughs> 